Um, So if you have your Bibles, it would be good if you could turn with me to James chapter 2. That's where we'll be starting this morning and hopefully finishing too. So yeah, starting with uh, James chapter 2, the very first verse. If you want to turn to that in your Bibles, we'll uh, read it and see what God has for us this morning. It says, My dear brothers and sisters, how can you claim to have faith in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ if you favour some people over others? For example, someone comes in to your meeting dressed in fancy clothes and expensive jewellery, whilst another comes in who is poor and dressed in dirty clothes. Oh, look at that, it's come on the screen. If you give special attention and a good seat to the rich person, but you say to the poor one, you stand over there or sit on the floor... Well, doesn't this discrimination show that your judgments are guided by evil motives? Listen to me, dear brothers and sisters. Hasn't God chosen the poor in this world to be rich in faith? Aren't they the ones who will inherit the kingdom he promised to those who love him? But you dishonour the poor. Isn't it the rich who oppress you and drag you into court? Aren't they the ones who slander Jesus Christ, whose noble name you bear? Yes, indeed, it is good when you obey the royal law, as found in the scriptures, love your neighbour as yourself. But if you favour some people over others, you are committing a sin. You are guilty of breaking the law. For the person who keeps all the laws except one is as guilty as a person who has broken all of God's laws. For the same God who said you must not commit adultery also said you must not commit murder. So if you murder someone but do not commit adultery, you have still broken the law. So whatever you say or whatever you do, remember that you will be judged by the law that sets you free. There will be no mercy for those who have not shown mercy to others. But if you have been merciful, God will be merciful when he judges you. Well, there we go. That's quite an interesting passage. I would say quite a powerful passage. Have you ever had one of those moments where you read the Bible and you think... Hmm, I'm not really sure what this is actually saying to me. Like, I, I get the words on the page, but how do I apply this? Like, we, there are passages that are like that, hard to understand, hard to apply. I don't think this is one of those. I think this is the opposite. This is just a hard passage. I think the application of this passage is the hard part. Understanding what it's asking us to do is fairly easy, but actually applying it is the difficult part. So let's take a journey together this morning as we walk through what this is teaching us and what I believe God is challenging us on and saying to us. I've given the talk... Uh, this talk, a title this morning, simply it's treating people with equality. Some of your Bibles might head this passage, favoritism forbidden. Some of them, if you've got older versions, might use the word partiality. It's all the same thing. It's all about favoritism and discrimination. And the first thing I think is extremely important that we get our heads around, which is right at the very beginning in verse 1, it says that how can we be following Jesus if we show favoritism? There is no place for favoritism in the kingdom of heaven. Yeah? If you've got your notes, that's your first answer. There's no place for favoritism in the kingdom of heaven. It's quite simple. I think James lays it out at the very beginning. So now we understand there's no place for favoritism. What do we do with that? What do we do with the rest of what he's teaching us? See, James moves on and then gives us an example of a poor person, a rich person, coming into the service or into a meeting and offering special chairs and places for the rich people to seat. Well, the good news is the king's church is an equal church. Everyone gets to sit on the hard plastic chairs we have. Yes, so we're all welcome together this morning. We're all equal with numbums as we sit on the lovely, exciting plastic chairs. I wasn't going to highlight Doreen, who's on a different one, but everyone's turned around and looking at her now. Ruined my example. 
But the point is, how can you be showing favoritism? That's not equal treatment. And I think that James uses an example of treating someone who's rich better than someone who's poor. It's just an example, as he says, for example. I think that's not the only type of discrimination or, or favoritism that James is challenging the, the, Jew, the Jewish Christians on. And I don't think that's the same or the only type of favoritism that we're challenged on. Because if we treated rich people and poor people the same but discriminated against other people, that's no better. That's exactly the same. We're still missing something. And it's interesting, isn't it, that a, a passage that was written in the first century to a load of Jewish Christians is still just as relevant to us today. Because I think as we go through this, you'll see that, unfortunately, sometimes we still get things wrong. We still show favoritism where we shouldn't. We still discriminate where we shouldn't. And as I was reading this, I thought to myself, gosh, how many times have I judged someone just because of how they look? This Bible, the, the passage talks about someone coming in dressed in nice clothes with nice jewellery, and that's why they treat this pe- person well, because they look the part. How many times have I treated someone better because I think, yeah, you look like you deserve it? How many times have we treated someone better because we think, oh, I want to be like you, or I like you? I guess the flip side of that is how many times have we treated someone less well because we don't like how they look? I don't think you deserve to be treated well because I'm better than you. See, there's a pattern there, isn't there, to how we treat people. It all starts with me and I and what I think. And James says quite powerfully that all favoritism or all discrimination only comes from evil motives, only comes from us, from selfishness. And the thing that we have to realize is that God doesn't look at people and how they dress. God doesn't look on people and how rich they are. If you've got your Bibles, you can turn to uh, 1 Samuel chapter 16 and verse 7. And this, just to give you a bit of introduction, this is where Samuel the prophet is going to anoint the future king of Israel. Um, and he goes to the, this guy called Jesse, that's a boy, who's got a load of sons, and says, you know, God's called me to anoint one of your sons to be king. And so he lines up all his sons, the big ones, the strong ones, the wealthy ones, and Samuel's like, no, it's none of these. And everyone's a bit like, well, hang on a minute, these, these people are the cream of the crop. This is who you would want to be your king. You want someone that looks the part, acts the part, is strong and is wealthy and is mighty. But instead what he does is God picks out David, who's like the smallest, the youngest, he's off looking after sheep. And then God says, the Lord says to Samuel, this is verse 7, don't judge by his appearance or height, for I have rejected him. This is about the other brothers. The Lord doesn't see things the way you see them. People judge by outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. You see, James is saying, don't look at people and judge people by what they wear and how you think they look. That's not how God judges us, which is a good thing, I think, because some of us that should get arrested by the fashion police probably need that bit of encouragement sometimes. But equally also, it means that it doesn't matter what we look like, it doesn't matter how tall we are, how short we are, how old, how thin, how young, whatever. It means that God's looking in here, first of all. That means we're all on an even keel, right? That means that God looks at us all equally. So we should be not judging people by what they wear or how they appear. I'd like to think I've never judged anyone by how they look and appear, but I know I have. I know there are times when I felt judged by how I look and appear. I remember when I was younger and I was a a kid. I wasn't the coolest kid in school, I'll be honest with you. I know it's hard to believe someone who's as passionate about Star Wars as me could not be the coolest kid in school, but I wasn't. And I used to dread those days called non-school uniform days. Who used to dread those days? Who remembers those days? Not because you had to pay for the privilege of going to school. What's that about? Well, those, those of you that paid to go to school... No offence. But if you had to pay to wear your own clothes, you're then opening yourselves up to like bullying, to rejection. Because if you haven't got the same train as everyone else, 
or the cool like jeans, then you're sort of looked down upon, you're thought less of. And I think as adults, we sometimes kid ourselves that we're better than that, but I don't think we are. I think sometimes we can fall into that trap of looking at other people and judging by their outward appearance. And the Bible makes it very clear that's not what we're called to do. We're called to follow God's example, yeah? We're called to look at people the way God looks at them. That's looking at the heart, looking at the real them, not becoming distracted or using their outward appearance as an excuse to judge them or show favoritism. As I said, favoritism usually, or the Bible says, it comes from evil thoughts. It comes from selfishness. Like how many times do we read in the newspaper about politicians that have got themselves into trouble because they've given their mates jobs or they've given government contracts out to people? They've shown favoritism. There's a, favoritism can only ever go one way. It's a negative thing, I think, as you'll see as we go through. But what's interesting is that the, the example that James chooses to use about rich and poor is that it sort of follows this ongoing theme through the Bible that poor people are important that the people that are sort of forgotten about are just as important. And I sort of, I wonder why that is, because I looked at this passage, and I looked at the verse about um, Samuel being challenged about looking at the heart, and I thought, a minute, let's think about Jesus for a minute, because Jesus is our ultimate example, right? Yeah? You can say yes. Jesus is our ultimate example. That's the answer. That's not on the sheet. That's just an answer. Um, and if you look in Matthew chapter 1, it talks about where Jesus came from. It talks about his sort of earthly ancestry, lineage. And if you look at that list, there's some very interesting characters in there. Just to highlight a few, there's a lady called Rahab who was a prostitute. There's also uh, a guy called Abraham who, yes, okay, was the father and made lots of good things, but he also made a few mistakes. There's a guy called David who did become king, but he started off life as a shepherd boy without a lot. And the point of highlighting these things to you is that Jesus didn't come from the rich, the wealthy, or the famous. He came from the normal people, came from the people that society might reject or look down upon. And the reason he did that, I think, is to make us realize that he's one of us. He's just like us. Yes, he's someone special, but he wanted us to know that everyone is special. There's no such thing as better or worse with people. And I think the irony is that the Pharisees and the, you know, the Jews sort of missed this. They expected the king of kings, the Messiah, to come as this person who was big, strong, powerful, your typical warrior with like wealth and status. And instead, they missed it because he came as a baby in a manger in a stable. He came in poverty, and they were too busy looking for someone rich. And yet here we read in the first century church that James is challenging his, his church, challenging these Jewish Christians that are making the same mistake again. They're too busy looking for the rich, the powerful, and the wealthy that are missing out on the poor people. I don't want to be one of these people that misses out a chance to serve Jesus because I'm too busy looking at the rich and the wealthy because I believe Jesus comes just as much in the poor, the downtrodden, and the often discriminated against. Two Corinthians eight nine says, "You know the generous grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. Though he was rich, for your sakes he became poor, so that by his poverty he could make you rich." Jesus came as the poor, as the lowest of the low, to make us rich, not with money, but to make us rich in relationship with him, to make us rich in life. He had to come as the poor, because we, in this world, I think we sometimes get things upside down. In fact, I think our whole culture is upside down as we'll see. Because verse 5 in, in James's passage says, Listen to me, dear brothers and sisters. Hasn't God chosen the poor in this world to be rich in faith? Aren't they the ones who will inherit the kingdom he promised to those who love him? See, James there is very clever. He's quoting the Beatitudes. He's quoting from what Jesus has actually preached. 
So if you turn to Matthew 5, verse 3, you'll see what I mean. It's there that Jesus says, God blesses those who are poor and realize their need for him, for the kingdom of heaven is theirs. Jesus came to bring the kingdom of heaven to those who are poor and realize their need for him. I would much rather be a poor person and realize my need for Jesus than be rich and think I've got everything sorted. Wouldn't you? Wouldn't it better to be in a place where we, we realize that without Jesus, we've got nothing? Because I think sometimes stuff in this life, the wealth, the richness, the fame can be a real distraction and you could try and like, distract us from what we really need and you think, I've got everything. How can I need anything else? Without all that stuff, we realize we need Jesus. And I think that's very important that we realize we need Jesus. See, James then continues with what appears to be his beating up, bashing of the rich people. James seems to have a real problem with rich people, but hopefully we'll see as we go through, he hasn't actually got that big of a problem. You'll see what he's getting at. But in verse 6, he highlights that the problem with rich people is they were dragging the Jews and the Christians into court. He's saying, why are you treating rich people better than poor people? These are the ones that are causing you a problem. And I think sometimes we sort of forget and think that it's all about being rich, it's all about being wealthy, it's all about being famous. That isn't about everything. And sometimes there's a lot of corruption that comes with money and wealth and status. I did some um, research. When I read that verse, I thought, what? That, that can't still be right now. I did a little bit of research. And Oxfam did a study at the end of last year, the beginning of this year, into tax and how it works in certain countries. And they looked at 30 Western countries. Um, for some reason, Great Britain didn't want to release any information to them. But interestingly, what they said, or the result of their report said this. Over the past few decades, the rich have successfully wielded influence to change policies in their favour on issues ranging from financial deregulation, tax havens, anti-competitive business practices, and the lowering of tax rates on higher incomes. Since the 1970s, tax rates for the richest have fallen in 29 out of 30 countries. Basically, the rich people are taking their opportunity to get more and more wealth. Yeah, And so... Although it sometimes kind of things, well, hang on, this was like thousands of years ago. How can it still be relevant? It hasn't changed. And sometimes when you've got more, all you want is more. And sometimes having less, like I've said, is, is more. Having less, you realize your need. And I think if we carry on going down this path of working with the culture we've got, where it's all about money, it's all about wealth, it's all about fame, we're going to miss out on something a great deal. As I said, it might seem like the Bible is really negative about money, about rich people, and about wealth. I don't think it is. I think it's just our culture is so pro those things. The Bible needs to redress the balance. The Bible is challenging about these subjects because our society is so hardwired to thinking it's all about having the most money, wearing the nicest clothes, looking the best. But the Bible instead is trying to take that, flip it on its head and remind us what it's really about. Can you think of a single famous person that's actually poor or was poor, is famous for being poor? There's, there's a few, but I think the whole way it works is if you've got money, if you've got status, you're famous. And that kind of leaves everyone else bottomed out. That means it leaves everyone else less important. I am um, interesting. I was reading part of um, Gandhi's autobiography recently. You know, Gandhi is yeah, the Indian guy who is a Hindu, quite famous. And in his autobiography, he wrote something quite, I, I think, quite powerful and quite challenging. Um, he, um, during his uh, student days when he was at university, he was considering, so he says, converting to Christianity because he thought actually 
the, the sermons that Jesus was preaching seems like the only way to solve the segregation problem in India, the separation between castes. And so he thought, you know what, I'll go to a church and see what it's all about. And so he went to a nearby church in India, and um, when he entered the church, an usher refused to give him a seat and suggested that he go and worship with his own people because Gandhi wasn't high enough caste to enter the church. He wasn't wealthy enough. And he came away and said, if Christians have caste differences also, I might as well remain a Hindu. See, that usher's prejudice prevented someone from coming to know Jesus. And I'd, I'd like to think that none of us have ever done that in a church setting. But I wonder, I know for me, how many times have you chosen not to spend time with someone because you don't really get them or you'd rather spend time with your favourites? I don't want to miss my opportunity to serve and spend time with the people Jesus has called me to because I'm too busy looking for my favourites. And I think James is trying to remind these Christians, and God is trying to remind us through this passage too, of the same thing. Don't become distracted by what the world tells you is important by who the, favorite people, who the favorites and the important the world tells you are. Instead, spend time with who Jesus has asked you to spend time with. Gandhi's experience demonstrates the dangers of special treatment for people. Any special treatment given because of status, appearance, wealth, and any of those reasons, there, there is a flip side to that. It's like a coin. I have a coin here, just for that purpose. It's a two-sided coin, which is lucky, because otherwise it wouldn't work. Heads and tails. So heads is like the favoritism side. So if I show everyone that I like, whatever reason I give, whether that be because of their money, because of where they're from, because of their gender, the, the flip side is it means I'm discriminating against all the other people that are the opposite to that. You can't show favoritism without showing discrimination. You can't give people special treatment without showing prejudice to everybody else. There is always a flip side. There is always a negative side. And what is really important to remember about the Bible and about Jesus is that Jesus came for everyone. He didn't just come for the special people. 2 Corinthians 5.15 says, He died for everyone, so that those who receive his new life will no longer live for themselves. Instead, they will live for Christ, who was raised for them. See, Jesus came and died for everyone. He didn't just come for the rich. He didn't just come for the poor. He didn't just come for the black or for the white or for the men or the women. Jesus came for everybody, and he calls us to serve everybody. You see, I think as time goes on, we sort of get this thing in our heads that actually our society is developing better because laws have changed in our favour or in favour of culture. So we've abolished slavery. That's a good thing, yeah? That's a good thing. We've abolished slavery. Yeah, we've given women the vote, so women have better more equality with men. They get paid the same for women in Wimbledon as men do. I'm not sure why, because they play less games. I'm just kidding. But there, there's, this, there's this like false sense of security that we're, we're doing better. We're getting things more even. But I still think we're not quite there, because no matter which sort of category you look at where we've tried to redress the balance, there's still another category that's in the negative. And the Bible's teaching on equality and the importance of showing no favoritism is countercultural. It, is, it goes against everything else out there. And I think our church culture should be based on this, not on the world standards. Yeah? It should be based on what the Bible says. Galatians 3.28, it says, There is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ. It says we're all equal in Christ. That's what the Bible says. That's what this church should be. That's what we should be trying to make our lives like. Forgetting what everyone else says out there, we should be trying to keep and treat everyone equal. So as we've briefly looked at the dangers and pitfalls of showing favoritism, 
you're probably now all thinking, oh, gosh, how am I going to go against this? Well, the knee-jerk reaction is, okay, fine. I won't, be, I won't treat everyone favorably. I'll treat everyone without favor. No one gets special treatment. That's the easy way out, isn't it? You just treat everyone the same and everyone badly. That's not what the Bible says. That's not what James is saying. Because if you read verse 8, he says to love your neighbor as yourself. And then he highlights the commandments or uh, some of the commandments with which God has called us to live. How can you treat, or how can you love your neighbor as yourself if you're treating no one with favoritism? What I think we should be doing is treating everyone favorably. Everyone the same, everyone equally, but everyone with favor, everyone we come across with special treatment. Why? Because Jesus tells us to love our neighbor as ourselves. When I read this and looked at uh, James, he highlights a couple of, of the commandments. He says, do not commit murder, do not commit adultery. I'm pleased to say I've never killed anyone, and I'm pleased to say I'm faithful to my wife. However, there are eight others which I probably haven't always kept. And so it's quite hard sometimes to remember the, the ten. Um, shouldn't be hard, but it sometimes is. So what Jesus did helpfully for us is he summarized them in two. So if you have your Bibles and you want to turn to Matthew 22, we hear, hear Jesus very helpfully summarizing the basis of the commandments when he's asked a question. He's asked, which is the most important commandment in the law of Moses? Jesus replies, you must love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, all your mind. This is the first and greatest. A second is equally important, to love your neighbor as yourself. The entire law and all the demands of the prophets are based on these two commandments. You see, there is no get-out clause here of treating everyone badly or treating some badly. We have to love our neighbor as ourselves. We have to love everyone. That's what Jesus asked us to do. That's what Jesus did. And that's why we do it. Yeah? Jesus, as I said, he chose to go from the heights of glory, from the heights of heaven, and he came to a much lower place called earth. And he came here in possibly one of the lowest ways he could have. He chose to give up all that stuff to become like us, to become the least of the, create, like, of the people he could, to become one with humanity so we could meet and know him. And what I think is interesting is that Jesus calls us and commands us, commands us to treat the least of people the way we would treat him. Have you ever realized that? That Jesus asks us to treat the least of people how we would treat him. If you don't believe me, it's in the Bible. So you can believe me now. Matthew 25, verse 40. And he's talking about um, the, the future and how people coming into heaven might be welcomed by him. And he's talking to um, his disciples and the people there. And he's saying about how when they've clothed people that needed clothing, they were doing that for him. And then when they fed people that needed feeding, they were doing it for him. And Jesus says, The king will reply, Truly I tell you, whatever you did for one of the least of these brothers and sisters of mine, you did for me. So that's a good thing. When we do things for who society or we might have felt were the least, we're doing it for Jesus. But then the flip side of that is if we choose not to do things for who society thinks the least, for the, if we choose not to do things for those we haven't shown favoritism to, are we then sort of avoiding and not doing those things for Jesus? I think if we're called to serve the least, we're called to serve Jesus in those places. We, can't, we don't choose who the least are. We just treat everybody as if they were Jesus. We serve everybody equally as if they were Jesus and if they needed serving the most. So as we've gone through this passage, we've gone from 
this sort of ouch moment where we realize, well, we might have shown favoritism. That's a bit of a problem. And then we've gone in to talk about how we're called to love everybody. And then just as you think you're getting around the corner and the rest of the passage is going to be lovey and great and a nice warm hug, we get that ouch moment, that bitter, sweet moment where we get verses 12 and 13. And it shows us and it tells us what we're required to do. So whatever you say or whatever you do, remember that you will be judged by the law that sets you free. There will be no mercy for those who have not shown mercy to others. But if you have been merciful, God will be merciful when he judges you. I find that quite a powerful verse. I find that quite a hard verse to accept. Part of it can be like, okay, well, I'm not going to be shown mercy if I don't show mercy. So if God's watching, I better be nice to these people. I better show mercy to these people. I don't think that's what it's saying. I think what it's saying instead is something a little bit different. But I think, first of all, we need to understand what mercy is. Mercy isn't just about being nice and kind to people and pleasant and saying, hello, have a nice seat um, or have a nice drink. Mercy is about showing gracious compassion to those people who need it. Mercy is far more than just being friendly and welcoming. It's about realizing where people need assistance, where people need help, and allowing our compassion, our emotion, our love for them to encourage some response to that by showing them some love, by showing them some time, by showing them some compassion. I think a great example that we have in this church where that's achieved is the food bank. If you don't know what the food bank does, they give out food like a bank gives out money. No, what they do is people who need food in this city get vouchers from partner agencies like other organizations, Salvation Army, Homeless Charities, Council Housing Office, just to name a few. And those people go there when they need help, when they're in a crisis. Those people give them a voucher. They then come to King's, and everyone with a voucher gets a bag or bags of food. Yeah? It's a very simple system. And so Martin and his team who give out the food, they don't decide who gets the food. Everyone that comes to the church with a voucher, unless they've stolen it or something, everyone that comes to the church with a voucher is entitled to a bag of food. There's no questions asked. There's no sort of special treatment. All oh, come in, sit down. You look like you need a seat. Everyone gets a voucher. Everyone gets like fed and dealt with in order. It's fair. There's no discrimination. If you turn up with a voucher, you get food. Every single one of those people who's in need gets shown mercy. They get given food when they need it most. That need is met without discrimination, without judgment, without prejudice. I think that is how Jesus is calling us to live. You see, we don't get to choose who comes to this church. You don't get to choose who walks through that door. In the same way, we don't really get to choose who walks into our lives to a certain extent. You might choose your friends, but you don't get to choose who you work with necessarily. You don't get to choose who your friends of friends are that you might meet on a night out. Some of you don't get to choose who your in-laws are. What we do get to choose, though, is we get to choose how we treat those people. We get to choose how much love, grace, and mercy we show those people. And what we have to do sometimes is put our own preconceived ideas, our own judgments, our own prejudices, our own favoritisms out of the window and just treat those people with love, the same love that we've been dealt with by Jesus. You see, the, the middle passage of, of this, this chapter, it sort of sets us up nicely because it reminds us in verse 10 about what he's saying about the law. It says that for a person who keeps all the laws except one is as guilty as a person who has broken all of God's laws. I know for sure I've broken at least one of those many, many times. Probably every morning before I've even realized it. We all start from the same place. 
where we've all broken at least one of God's laws. We've all come short of entering his presence. But you see, the good thing is that he's provided a way for that. In his mercy, he's provided Jesus so that we all have that chance to come into his presence. We've all been shown mercy by Jesus. We've all been shown mercy by the cross. And that is the same mercy which God calls us to give out. If the band want to come back up. Just as I'm coming to finish, as I said before, we don't show mercy like James challenging us to, out of fear of judgment, out of fear of a big stick, or out of fear of not being shown mercy ourselves. We show mercy, why? Because we've been shown mercy first. We show mercy because Jesus went to the cross for us. He went to the cross for everyone, not just the rich people, not just the poor people, not just the men, not just the women, not just those who um, have a good education or those that don't. Jesus went to the cross for every single person that was ever created. He went to the cross for us. And because of that mercy, we show mercy. You see, God, when he looks at people, he looks at us all equally. As I said, he looks at us all in the heart. That's what 1 Samuel 16 says. He looks at us all equally. He doesn't look at our outward appearance. He looks at us, the real us, our hearts. When we come into contact with people that God brings to us, whether we choose to have contact with those people or not, we're called to look at those people's hearts not to judge them by how they look or to judge them by our personal feelings about them, but instead to look at the real them. Secondly, God chooses, not to, sorry, God chooses to treat us all equally. Every single one of us is saved by the cross. None of us have done something better than anyone else that deserves them to be saved more. So God calls us to treat people equally as well. And finally, as I said, God calls us, commands us to treat people equally, not to have favourites, but to treat everyone with favour, to treat everyone with love. As he says, we're to love our neighbour as ourselves. And that is what he calls us to do. Shall we pray? Father God, I thank you that you've called us into your presence. Lord, by your mercy, you've given us a chance to have a relationship with you, that you treat us all equally, and that's equally with the cross. And Lord, I pray that as we come to worship you, as we come to spend this time responding to your word, that we want to know how to respond to your presence.